You like to watch new stuff, right? Well, go to Hulu and see what's new, because Hulu has new stuff all the time. Like Vanderpump Villa, the new docudrama starring Lisa Vanderpump, where first-class luxury meets world-class drama. A new season of The Kardashians starring The Kardashians, of course. And Grand Cayman, Secrets in Paradise, the sizzling new reality show set in the tropical Caribbean. It's all new and it's streaming now on Hulu. It's one thing falling in love with a house, picturing yourself moving in and calling it home, and quite another navigating the world of price negotiating, mortgage lenders, and finding the budget that works best for you. An agent who's a Realtor can make understanding that world easier. Realtors have the expertise, access to proprietary data, and tools to help you get from imagining living somewhere to actually doing it. That's the kind of help we can provide. Because that's who we are. Realtors are members of the National Association of Realtors. This episode is brought to you by Progressive, where drivers who save by switching save nearly $750 on average. Plus, auto customers qualify for an average of seven discounts. Quote now at Progressive.com to see if you could save. Progressive Casualty Insurance and Company and Affiliates. National average 12-month savings of $744 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2022 and May 2023. Potential savings will vary. Discounts not available in all states and situations. The year is 2005, and today's episode is Gouda for You. The movie Wallace and Gromit, The Curse of the Were-Rabbit. everyone and welcome to Unspooled. I'm Amy Nicholson. And I am Paul Shear, and this is the show where we are trying to find the 100 best movies of all time. And when we do, we're sending them into outer space. We're in the middle of a brand new series, Animation. Animation. Yes. We're and so clever. Oh, such good titling on this show. And, it is a pun uh, worthy of today's movie. <laughs> Um, today we are talking about Wallace and Gromit and the Curse of the Were-Rabbit. It was great to read everyone's uh, suggestions and opinions about my opinions about Akira last week. And I, you know, look, I am down to get into anime. It's just been one of those things in my life that has really, like, just gone over my head. There are certain blind spots I have, cultural blind spots that I have that are surprising to people. I mean, what are your like cultural blind spots, like something that you feel like you don't, that you just, not that you're against it, but you're just not really like deep in it. Well, first I want to say, when you said it went over your head, you did the over your head hand motion, which I realize yeah. I have not seen since the 90s when I was a child. <laughs> Thank you for bringing that back. Um, you know, I like to do a lot of uh, visual bits for the podcast medium. Oh <laughs> uh, gosh, my cultural blind spot. You know, there's a lot of action movies from the 80s that I feel like I'm still catching up on because I mm. was just I was like too young to watch any of them. Right. And uh, so like, yeah, sometimes like people get on and on and on about Steven Seagal. And I've only seen like one or two Steven Seagal that movies. That one, I feel like you could probably be OK with like two, like Out for Justice and Under Siege. And you'll be pretty good. I mean, like, my I feel like those has are the a two. crush on him. So I feel like I should. Oh, wow. Really? Yeah. Now Steven Seagal? It, I think so. Like I was watching Three Days of the Condor with her once at her uh -huh. house. 
And I turned to her and I was like, so Robert Redford, was he your guy when you were younger? And she said, no. And then she waited about two minutes of suspense. And then she just said, Steven Seagal. Oh my God. I, one of my uh, ADs that I worked with uh, worked on a Steven Seagal movie. And it's, you know, this later era Steven Seagal film, uh, all after, post on Deadly Ground. Uh, and they choreographed this big fight scene where he was going to take two guys who had guns on him and beat them up at a table. And they had this whole thing worked out. And Steven Seagal uh, came in, watched the choreography and goes, huh, hmm. How about I just do this? And he took his left fist and punched it to the right and his right fist and punched it to the left. So like his arms crossed and he knocked out the guys and he never had to move. (laughs) And it seemed like the whole movie was just how can Steven do fight scenes with the most limited movement possible? Uh, well, Paul, I have to say, I was not expecting you talking about Steven Seagal at the top of our Ardman animation episode. Oh my I don't gosh. know if this I is got so the first many time Steven they've ever Seagal been in stories. the same hour of podcast talk <laughs> ever. <laughs> Steven Seagal kind of was like my Vin Diesel growing up. I mean, I feel like they have a very similar trajectory. Like if Steven Seagal had social media, he might have become Vin Diesel. He's a little, like a little more uh, mysterious, but, uh, but yeah, I, I would yeah. have liked to have seen Steven Seagal on social media. I'm sure like, he's on it now. A picture of Jean-Claude Van Damme as the action hero with like his heart on his sleeve compared to Oh him. yeah. Yeah. I mean, Jean-Claude Van Damme is definitely a much more personable guy. And I know this because when he was on, I don't know why we're going down this route, but I'm going to, when he was on Arsenio Hall, he really just, he you know, had this energy of just being really like kind of a flirty, fun guy. And of course, you know, everyone knows the the boner clip. I mean, when he was on like a Dancing with the Stars and he got like, you know, just popped a full wood there on the show. And then it was like, it was a like a... There's R&B songs already about that. It happens. <laughs> really? What's that song called? It was the one. You're making it hard for me. You know that one? <laughs> I, I didn't. You know what? Of course it's about that, but I didn't realize it. Just like the My Little Pony <laughs> movie. Um, well, you know what's hard? Doing claymation. We've seen how long it takes. And I would argue that the masters of this form currently is Ardman Studios. They have this amazing grasp on, I, I feel like, a tactile sense of claymation that even feels more like mom and pop or more personable than Nightmare Before Christmas. Like Nightmare Before Christmas seems very polished. This, there's something. There's I fingerprints don't know. here. Fingerprints. You yeah. see fingerprints actually on the skin. Yeah. I feel like I use fingerprints as an analogy all the time when I'm talking about movies that I like, just as a metaphor. But here, it's actually just literal. Literal. We literally see the director's fingerprints on these characters. Uh, Well, Amy, without any further ado, I mean, shall we unspool it? The year is 2005. George W. Bush starts his second term and acknowledges he authorized government wiretaps following 9-11. 
Hurricane Katrina decimates the South, flooding roughly 80% of New Orleans and killing over 1,600 civilians. Former PayPal employees break off and establish YouTube. Pope John Paul II dies, and Pope Benedict XVI is elected his successor. The hot movies of this year include a film that we did here on the show, Brokeback Mountain, Harry Potter and the Goblet of Fire, Star Wars Episode Three, and, of course, Wallace and Gromit, The Curse of the Were-Rabbit. Amy... Tell us about this film. Who was in it? What's it about? And what was on the radio? Uh, Wallace and Gromit, The Curse of the Were-Rabbit is the first and to date only feature of the multi-award winning stop motion pair Wallace and Gromit. Wallace is a kooky British inventor and Gromit is his silent, sensible dog. Wallace and Gromit fans know that across their oeuvre, they just change jobs constantly, kind of like Barbie, I guess. Uh, Here in this film, they are humane pest exterminators who specialize in protecting gardens from bunnies, which is very serious work in rural England, especially leading up to the big, biggest vegetable competition, the competition to have the biggest vegetable. Things here take a turn when Wallace's new invention turns him into a were-rabbit with no knowledge of the fact that every night he rampages gardens. And because his dog knows this but can't talk, he can't really tell him. Uh, Wallace is voiced by Peter Salas. Uh, Helena Bottom Carter plays his rich lady quasi-love interest, Lady Tottenham. And Ray Fiennes voices Lord Victor, her suitor, who wants to shoot all of the rabbits and marry Lady Tottenham for her money. Take a listen. They've mesmerized audiences. They've delighted millions. Job well done, lad. <laughs> now, Wallace and Gromit in their first full-length motion picture. <laughs> Gromit, old pal, I'll need assistance. The gardens of England are in danger. Yeah, it's a disaster. I have the most Problem. From a terror so fierce. Well, they must be breeding like, well, rabbits. It will petrify your parsnips. If you ask me, this was arson. Curdle your carrots. Arson? Alright, someone arson around. <laughs> and chill you to the marrow. <laughs> Wallace and Comet Curse of the Were Rabbit was directed by Wallace and Gromit originator, Nick Park, who came up with the characters in the early 80s. He co-directed this with Steve Box. Uh, The film was the second DreamWorks film to win the Academy Oscar after, what was it? Shrek. Oh, yeah. Um, And to date, it is the only European animated film to ever win the animated Oscar. Ever. Uh, They've never won it before. Um, It swept also the Animation Awards that year. It swept the BAFTAs. Uh, It beat Miyazaki's Howl's Moving Castle and The Corpse Bride. Uh, And yet, at the end of the day, the main thing that people were talking about was the story of how this film was made. The headlines were all about how it was co-produced by Jeffrey Katzenberg at DreamWorks, who had signed Ardman Animation to a five-picture, 150 million pound deal. That's like $250 million, I think. Mm. And that the Hollywood half of this production had freaked out the whole time that this movie was being made that it was too British. Um, And they wound up not very long after deciding not to work with each other anymore. Now, the question here that I think we'll talk about is how British is too British. I'm looking forward to discussing that. But another secondary question is, you know, does hard work, does creating what you want to create matter more than big bucks? That is an important question for movie making. And it is a question also debated in the number one song on the charts when this movie was released in the States on October 5th, 2005. 
It is, of course, Kanye West and Gold Digger. Now I ain't saying you a gold digger, you got knees. You don't want to do the smoke, but he can't buy. You go out to eat, he can't pay, y'all can't leave. It's dishes in the back, you gotta roll up your sleeves. But while y'all washing, watch him. He gon' make it to a beans out of that toxin. He got that ambition, baby. Look at his eyes. This week he mopping floors, next week is the fries. So stick by his side. I know his dude's ballin' and yeah, that's nice. And they gon' keep calling. Ooh, good one. I like that. Uh, you know, Amy, for today's conversation, I wanted to introduce that, you know, we know a little bit about Wallace and Gromit. We know a little bit about Ardman, but we do have an expert. And I think he's probably even upset that I'm calling him a Wallace and Gromit expert or even an Ardman expert. But it's our sound engineer, Devin. Uh, Devin will be here throughout the show in case, you know, we have a question that we might not know or we make uh, an assumption that might be wrong. He's here to kind of fact check us in life. Uh, because I do think it's important as we tackle these larger uh, genres and these little avenues that we uh, we can kind of have a, a real fact check in the moment. Are you yeah. down with that, Amy? A phone a friend. I mean, I think starting with, we should talk to Devin about how we all talked together, decided that this would be the Ardman to pick. Because yes. at first I was like, that's a long-ass title. Shouldn't we be doing Chicken Run? And <laughs> Devin convinced us that this was the film. Yeah, well, okay. Hi, everyone. It's Devin. Um, this one to me, well, okay, first of all, you said it yourself. This is the one that won the Oscar, you know, for, for and the BAFTA. So this is one that was truly critically acclaimed when it came out. Uh, yes, it had a little bit of a difficult birth, as you say, but I think the results for me speak to, for themselves as being kind of the purest Ardman film, feature-wise, I think. There are others that I love that I would that I could easily have advocated for. Sean the Sheep is brilliant. Uh, the most overlooked one, Pirates, exclamation mark, in an adventure with scientists, exclamation mark. Nobody saw that one, but that movie is phenomenal. It's just fantastic. But again, Wallace and Gromit are Ardman's are iconic characters, the most iconic characters they ever had. This film is the only feature with them. And uh, yeah, I mean, and it's Nick Park making this one, you know, because there are other people at Ardman. There's Peter Lord and like you say, Steve Box worked on this one. There's a couple other people that make movies, but Nick Park is the guy who created Wallace and Gromit. He's kind of what helped build the success of Ardman. And this, I think, is his this is like his perfect film for me. I love that you kind of brought that to our attention because I think a lot of people might know Chicken Run as their Ardman film because of what Amy said. It is not distinctly British, right? This is yes. this is not even trying. And the one thing I was fascinated by was they tried to replace the voice of Wallace, yes. right? Like Peter Salas originated this voice and they were like, well, we need somebody bigger. Like DreamWorks really wanted someone bigger. And I think, you know, talking to what you were saying, Amy, like this idea that right out of the gate, what a way to start, like, we are taking these characters that are the backbone of your studio uh, and we are going to not carry over the one thing that truly, I think, connects you to them, which is the voice, you know, yeah. and uh, characters who, by the way, are so beloved in England that they have wished Queen Elizabeth happy birthday. They wished Prince Charles his 70th birthday on television like they, they know royalty. When they wished uh, Prince Charles happy birthday, they actually had to start that when he was 65 to get that full uh, two-minute clip together. <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> he could have died. I mean, <laughs> I mean, there are so many things here. I, I'm 
fascinated by the whole claymation process. Um, we've talked about this a little bit um, in Nightmare Before Christmas, but just to kind of talk about some technical aspects. Every day, they are getting a whopping three seconds of usable footage. Three seconds of usable footage a day. The film took five years to make, and I know uh, because my wife, June, um, worked for Aardman uh, for a little bit of time. She did Creature Comforts, which was a really cool uh, doc series where they would go and interview people and then animate them as animals talking about uh, their everyday routines. So you would sit down with a couple in Miami and they would talk about how they you know, spend their mornings and then they'd animate them as birds. It was really an amazing process. She got to go visit uh, the Ardman Studios. And when she said, you know, Paul, do you want me to be here on the podcast? I said, absolutely not, because I will never have Jason or June on this podcast. <laughs> um, so, yeah, neither will I. <laughs> um, but when I she know was, what Jason says about me. <laughs> uh, but I do think... What is amazing is, yes, three seconds of usable footage a day, but often there are multiple sets working at the same time. And on top of all of that, what I found to be really interesting was it's a arduous process and you don't see many claymated features come out, but this is a year where two come out simultaneously, you know, Corpse Bride and this, which uh, was very interesting. And they both have like slightly similar plots in a way, like in a, in a very, you know, they are uh, obviously playing, I mean, in the Gothic world uh, a little bit, you know, the, the, not, I wouldn't say thriller, but it has like a, you know, it has a, a spooky undertone to it. Although I think that the one is a decidedly less, but uh, Helena Bonham Carter is in both. And uh, they both have a subplot about a snobby suitor trying to cash in uh, by an act of marriage. <laughs> Somebody actually asked Helena Bottom Connor, which of these characters are you more like? Are you more like posh lady Tottenham who loves her vegetables? Like really loves her vegetables? Like sexually seems to just love vegetables. I'd like to show you one last thing. Something no other man has ever seen. <laughs> My carrot the chardonnay. Uh, oh, just smell it, Wallace. Oh. Feel its silken flesh. Oh, yes. Isn't it the most sumptuous, oh, sucking yes. specimen you've ever seen? Yes. Doesn't it fill yes. your heart yes. with desire? Yes. Just imagine what it would taste like. Or are you like the corpse bride? And she was like, I am definitely more corpse bride. But yeah, of course. what I love about how she did the Lady Tottingham character is she um she was like this is a British woman. She's going to be kind of posh and strange and she's going to be kooky. I know exactly what this character needs. And she took her fake teeth from Planet of the Apes that she had worn when she mm. was in monkey costume, her prosthetic teeth. And she put them in and then she wore them as she did all of her lines so that she would give the essence of gigantic, uh, like rich lady British teeth that had never been fixed into the film. Oh, I love it. Teeth play a very large part in this film. You like to watch new stuff, right? Well, go to Hulu and see what's new, because Hulu has new stuff all the time. Like Vanderpump Villa, the new docudrama starring Lisa Vanderpump, where first-class luxury meets world-class drama. A new season of The Kardashians starring The Kardashians, of course. And Grand Cayman, Secrets in Paradise. 
the sizzling new reality show set in the tropical Caribbean. It's all new and it's streaming now on Hulu. A lot can happen between falling in love with a house online and owning it. Between imagining living there and breathing in your new home for the first time. Having an advocate who can help you navigate the complex world of financing, inspections, negotiating, analyzing the market, and talking through any anxieties that may pop up, that can make all the difference. That's what the expertise of a Realtor can do for you. Realtors are members of the National Association of Realtors and bound by a code of ethics. Because that's who we are. You know, Paul, I wonder if your first experience with Aardman is the same as my first experience with Aardman, except we didn't know that it was Aardman. And it was, this music video. Oh my goodness, yes. Right? All of the crazy animation happened around Peter Gabriel's head. Did not know that that was Aardman. And then I went back today, rewatched the video. And you know that part where he's like, you can have a bumper car bumping. The bumper cars have the exact same mouth and smile as Toddy. Same bumper car, same mouth. You expect them to be like, hey, what's up? Blah, 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 blah. Oh, by the way, when this movie came out, everybody was weirded out that Aardman had done a character with lips. Toddy was their first character with lips and the Lord. The Lord had had lips too. They'd never done lips before. I think Nick Park said that he figured fancy people needed lips. I love it. Uh, I mean, you do. You do need lips. And by the way, they are almost comically drawn on or placed on. And I love how I, they are become a character of themselves. They're great lips. <laughs> you know, watching this film... There's one word that comes to my mind, and it it's just like delightful. I find this movie to be just a pure delight. And, you know, to Devin's point about it maybe being the perfect uh, amalgamation of everything that they do, in a weird way, it's a perfect amalgamation of a lot of what we talk about on the show. I mean, there is an homage to silent film here, like across the board. We have one of the main characters doesn't speak. I I feel like there's such a tip of the hat throughout this film of like old school kind of classic movie making. It feels on one hand incredibly uh, familiar and, and warm, but on the other hand, it's incredibly funny and it pays off in a very big way. It's like, it's cute without being... And it feels like it's pushing being... the medium. Like yes. It's like, it's stop-motion animation where the camera is moving like a camera. It's it's like amazing. And they and zooming. The, the, the rabbits floating around in the, like, the vacuum cleaner, the way that they use CGI and they, they really do. I mean, I think that's a big deal here, you know, that they use uh, this, you know, these different kinds of elements here. It's just not claymation. It's the the fog coming through. Uh, you know, there's over 700 shots here that contain some sort of digital effects. Um, and, you know, that's also uh, including all the water scenes because the water scenes are CGI. So there's a great blending. But I guess just to, to put a fine uh, tip on my point, uh, I would say, uh, I don't even know if that's a phrase. Um, it is cute and it's sweet without being saccharine 
And I feel like I have not seen that balance in a while. Um, you know, like there's nothing about this film and that maybe is something that to me feels distinctly British, right? It is, it allows itself to still be, I don't know, have an edge. Am I right? I want to kind of break this down with you because I know you were interested about like, is it too British? But there is something about this film that is different than a lot of films, um, that might be like this. If this was made more as a straight-up DreamWorks film, I would see maybe more heart, maybe a song, maybe, uh, you know, there's something about it that it keeps its edge. Do you feel that or am I wrong in saying that? I mean, it's an interesting transition point from Akira, right? Because, like, Mm -hmm. Akira last week was all depressing in sort of a brutal nihilistic world of, like, here's what happens when people who you care about might die, even as they're trying to be on your side. And the movie just moves on because we don't, we aren't a film with a lot of time to mourn, you know? And this is a movie where no one ever gets hurt. They actually kind of take pains that no one ever gets hurt. Like the drama is that people have vegetables that are getting hurt, you know, and they treat their vegetables like children. So the stakes are very high. Pumpkin, my little baby, my pride and joy. You've saved it, Antipesto. It was nothing at all, you see. Oh, everything's oh, no. under control. No. I, I don't worry, oh. madam. Thank you, Mr. Wallace. All in the night's work, Mrs. Much. Oh, cute little fella, isn't it? You'd never believe they'd cause so much damage. Oh, he may look innocent, sir, but left to his own devices, this is the ultimate vegetable-destroying machine. I mean, by the way, this is a the world's first vegetarian horror film. I don't believe that. Uh, <laughs> Attack of the Killer Tomatoes. You're right. Yeah, not a, a Soylent Green. Texas right. Chainsaw Massacre. All right, so Nick Park, you wrong. <laughs> yeah, because they put their stakes there, it feels really dramatic. And yet, you know, there's villains chasing each other and everybody's crashing from roofs and they make a point of being like, he lands here. Everything's fine. We're all we're OK. Nobody's going to wind up even getting like a bruise at the end of this movie. And you feel safe with that. And yet it's not going to give you like the balloons and big hugs, happy ending. Like Wallace has love into interest throughout his like franchise of movies in shorts, and yet he never winds up with anybody at the end. There's always some sort of bittersweet, like, we go back to where we began. These guys live in their house. They do their little jobs. They hang out and they eat their cheese. It, it doesn't solve anything on a big level, you know? Mm-hmm. I, and I like that about it. Like, But it is completely on its own pace. Yeah, I think you're right. There's a simplicity here that I think we've gotten into this world where we can really appreciate something that is done by Wait, hand. Maybe that's you know, it, I, that oh. nobody learns a lesson, right? Who oh. learns a lesson in here? I guess yeah, maybe right. uh, Tottingham is like, I guess bunnies in my yard are fine. Sure. But but Wallace and Gromit don't learn a lesson. Yeah, I guess you don't even walk away from it thinking that like Wallace learns not to mess with his uh, brain. I mean, what, what what would you even call that? The brain contraption? I don't know. We should just let him talk about it. It's time we tried my latest invention. The mind manipulation nomatic. Oh, it extracts unwanted thoughts and desires. I haven't tested it yet, 
but it should be perfectly safe. Just a bit of harmless brain alteration, that's all. But yeah, he's he's not going to stop inventing at the end of this. He's going to keep no. inventing weird stuff. But maybe I'm sick of lessons. Maybe I don't want what? movies to tell me what to do. You know what I'm thinking about as I'm realizing a feeling I'm getting from this movie? It feels very Pee-wee's Big Adventure to me, right? It, it's, um, it oh, is yeah. a childlike wonder and fascination with machines and inventions, but also, you know, written with an adult's edge to it. Yeah, and your lead hero is your lead hero, and he's not going to make any big changes to who he is. No, they have a very simple quest, you know. um, And he's kind of fine the way he is. They're fine. They're weirdos, but we like them for being weirdos. They don't need to learn a lesson. No, they they go on an adventure, and there's an an antagonist. Uh, But yeah, it's a very interesting different type of film i i reacted to it you know there's a there's a fear that after i watched akira i was like maybe i'm just not gonna respond to any of this stuff because i'm so in the pixar and disney world and this just was so refreshing and fun and i obviously know these characters and i've seen a lot of pieces of these characters over the years. I never had seen this film before, um, even though I, I believe I'd seen like a few clips. And it just truly is a delight. You know, I just realized this conversation makes me think of something that I actually read that Nick Park say, which is in the way that he thinks about his characters, that um, sometimes people will ask him, like fans of Wallace and Gromit will ask him specific questions about who these people really are. Like he'll say, they'll ask him um what would Wallace give Gromit for Christmas? And he would always say, like, I don't have an answer. Like, he thinks of them as, like, distinct people. He respects these characters in a way where he feels like they have their own life. So it's not like he needs to come in and talk about their inner workings of the soul. He's like, they'll tell me, the character will tell me what they are when it comes up. And it's like he's visiting them in a way. Even though they're the most handcrafted thing on the planet, he visits them emotionally. And he's not like, I will use them to say something. That's really interesting because I was wondering, like, how do you come up with an idea for these characters? I would never have picked a werewolf movie for Wallace and Gromit. Their first feature, maybe their fifth, as you're kind of thinking, okay, what else can we do with these characters? Maybe we'll do that. You know, doing a a horror homage, you know, or genre parody in a way seems so different. So I, I wonder if it's like, do you have the idea for that or do you think... What would I like to see Wallace and Gromit in? Are they like Abbott and Costello? Like Abbott and Costello, you know, meet Frankenstein. Is it like that? Like, how do you, how do you approach that? I wonder. I mean, are you just like discovering an old paperback copy of Benicula somewhere? Are you thinking of Monty Python and the killer rabbits in that movie? Oh, are you thinking about the medieval like manuscripts and the history of like violent rabbits? I mean, if anything, like, are we on a trend of, like, violent rabbits destroying people? I tried to Google if there's ever been a case of a rabbit killing a person, and mm-hmm. I found one, but it feels like kind of a stretch, that a farmer was bitten by a rabbit a couple of years ago, and the rabbit had some sort of a rabbit flu, and the okay. man died. But I haven't found, like, Very rabbits. similar to Power of the Dog. I mean, it's, a you know, it the is. hide is infected, and yeah, I mean, it's a, it's a roundabout way of getting there. I will say that maybe... Peter Salas, who is the voice of Wallace, who we've already talked about, he was in The Curse of the Werewolf in 1961. 
Uh, so maybe, you know, they oh, uh, true. wanted to. And, you know, he was in homage. a thing actually where he took turns with this role with Christopher Lee. So he knew Christopher Lee really well. Oh, he was in like, I mean, Peter Salas's career, like it goes back. Like the, the thing that he was switching roles with Christopher Lee in was this crazy production called like, or it was by Orson Welles. He wrote it. He starred in it. It was called Moby Dick Rehearsed. And the mm. way that it played out is like people at the theater sit down, they show up, they open the stage, the stage is, is blank. And the setup is that all the people on stage are actually supposed to be doing King Lear. Um, okay. but, and, and they're just like rehearsing King Lear. But as they're kind of annoying each other and like talking about how they don't really want to do King Lear, then he comes in, Orson Welles, as like the sort of director character. And he orders them to start doing Moby Dick in, uh, instead. And they don't really want to. So they drag themselves through doing it. They don't have any props for Moby Dick. And then as it goes on, they get more and more. Good. It's kind of like forced improv, I guess. It, it sounds like a scripted version of what an improv show is. Mm. And so he was like, yeah, everything I want to do is like, at the end of the stage, I need the audience to like see the white whale and like imagine that the Pequot is like hunting the white whale down on this like barren stage. It was this huge, ambitious project that now makes me feel bad about the time that I went to go see Moby Dick, the opera, and I was mad that there was no whale. But this wasn't done as well as this. Uh, um, anyway, Peter Salas was in that. And so was Christopher Lee, but they would they uh, played the same part. And so there is a... Uh, a horror element to it, I suppose. Well, one thing that you guys haven't mentioned yeah. uh, yet it, that's the direct influence of, of you know, where they kind of came up with the idea for this movie are the Hammer Horror films. Oh, right. Ha Hammer Horror is what, what, you know, they made the Christopher Lee and Peter Cushing Dracula and Frankenstein, all those throughout the 60s and, and into the 70s. And I think Hammer just got rebooted actually recently. They have a new kind of lease on life, but... Those classic 60s and 70s uh, hammer horror are very much the foundation of what's going on here. And uh, the Quatermass Experiment and Doctor Who are both in there as well. Uh, Doctor Who has a little connection here because the film is actually co-written by Bob Baker, who is a guy who created K-9 for Doctor Who. Many people oh, know. Oh, wow. Yes. The, the do fourth Doctor's robot dog. Um, Bob Baker is a part of writing this movie and a part of animating it. After he had done work writing for uh, many British TV shows, he ended up kind of working for Aardman. So there's a little bit here that's tying it back to some really specific 50s, 60s, 70s British sci-fi and horror. That's kind of the underpinning of it. That makes a lot more sense. There you go. I like that. It's it's in the, the grand British tradition uh, <laughs> in a way. I mean, like, because Although it, it's it does... Funny as I think because I know the Christopher Lee movies and the horror stuff, but I don't know all of that. What I, what popped out to me was just that this movie kept nodding to Jaws. Didn't it feel like it was Jaws? Oh over no, and over I never. Again? No, I never felt that. Oh, I kept thinking about Jaws, like when they were, like when they were having the town's meeting about what to do about this giant mm. were rabbit. There's basically like the quint scene. This was no man. Does a man have teeth the size of axe blades? <laughs> or ears like terrible tombstones? <clears throat> By tampering with nature, forcing vegetables to swell far beyond their natural size, we have brought a terrible judgment upon ourselves. Hey, 
And then at the end, where like the hunter, uh, the hunter lord, this voice by Ray finds when he's looking through the crosshairs and he just sees like the rippling water. I was like, oh, there we go. That's Jaws again. Oh, wow. But well, I, I mean, there's I do just think so it- much in here that you just pull out what what's like recognizable. You're talking about that scene where they're, the town gets together to decide what they're going to do. And I, I realize in that moment, like I'm looking at a bunch of clay and I feel very connected to these characters because each one of them feels unique and alive. And I think sometimes when you see a CGI film or like an animated CGI film or even another animated film, like that background isn't as rich. Like these characters pop more. Like every character pops more because they have to be fully realized. And going back to what you were saying about Nick Park talking about he doesn't know the characters come to him. It feels like when you build a character, when you have these molds that someone is making, each one is imbued with something. There's a magic there. And I know it sounds silly to say, but I do think there is more personality in a background claymated character than potentially in a animated CGI character. Not artistry, but I'm simply saying that there's some juice, some, I've put my fingers on this thing. I've created yeah, something. Something feel, about it is me. You yeah. feel the human behind it? Like you're, you're like subconsciously more aware? Some, yeah. I mean, it's the way I feel about Muppets. Yeah. Every Muppet has a little bit of a personality because someone is creating that, right? There's a per, there's elements there. And it's, this whole movie is full of that. It's like all the wallpaper is hand painted. There, you know, everything here is done by someone. So they're adding their touches yeah. to it. I think, and when you, you know, see that it on things me, like, like sawdust, when they're just looking mm-hmm. at some wooden planks and there's sawdust there and you're like, what? Or the water spots on the car windows, like smudges on the walls. It's, it's the dirt in the corners of this movie that knocks me out because it just looks so hard to create even and that they thought yeah. about it, that it's not, there's something in the way that this world looks lived in and not shiny that makes it feel extra rich to me that they, but even though I, even though you have to add the dirt, but this goes back, I mean, to the history of stop motion, like the, one of the very first stop motion animations ever made, uh, somebody did a thing with like dead beetles. It was like a love triangle where they took these dead beetles and, oh, this one beetle wasn't sure which of these two dead beetles to date. And audiences just believe that the actor had trained beetles, you know, just like, they, yeah. they believed in it so much that they're like, wow, these Beatles are fantastic actors. <laughs> uh, but yeah, I mean, the Armin guys, I think, do a good job making everything seem alive. You know, like when they won the Oscar for this, they showed up and they were walking on, on, on the stage of the Oscar podium and they had these like gigantic striped bow ties on. And mm-hmm. then the very first thing they did before they started talking is they reached into their pockets and they took out two tiny bow ties and they put them on their Oscars so that their Oscars would be dressed. <laughs> oh, 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 this is my, actually, we've got a little thing uh, yeah. just to uh, match the old bow ties for coordination. We just happened to bring them along just yeah. in case. Classic bit. Classic bit. One of the things that my boyfriend and I do all the time is I like, I have a lot of hand puppets, like literal hand puppets, but also I just talk with my hands a lot and I turn them into puppets. I and love Just that. a little dog talking to people. And I do this constantly. So I appreciate people who turn inanimate things alive. Now, you know, we can get into all the nitty gritty of the design. And we've talked about like that element of it. I think that that's all interesting, but I I do want to talk about what you were saying 
about there being no moral, right? This idea of just having a fun story, just a fun adventure, right? It, it feels loose. It feels like, in many respects, a movie like Raiders of the Lost Ark. There's no moral for Indiana Jones. He's going on an adventure, and the next one is another adventure. There's no, you know, so much so that we don't even really care what life happens before or after him. James Bond goes on an adventure. James Bond doesn't, you know, change. Uh, and when they do, it's like in a finale. And I do think that that may be one of the reasons why Crystal Skull was not as fun because it was like, oh, we're trying to like weave all this shit back together. And what we really want to do is just go on an adventure. We get caught a lot in, well, what's the arc and what's the journey? And going back to adaptation and the idea of, you know, we need to do more. Like we need to show more. Um, but these films, I think Akira does that too. I mean, Akira is a different journey, but there are these, I think both of these films say to the audience, like, we know you're smart. We're not playing down to you. We're not making anything over simplistic. Here, I think it's, let's have a fun time. We love these characters. Let's have a fun time. I think Akira is like, we're going to tell you this crazy story. Get it, don't get it, but here, like, like we are... I mean, yeah, like, I, I was trying to think of, like, what the moral of this would be as I was watching it. You know, like, that Jaws scene that we played, I was like, oh, okay, is this movie about the way humans affect the natural world? You know, like, hmm. our relationship with nature, is it about that? And it touches on it. You know, it, it is weird, I think, that humans are so obsessed with growing the biggest of something. Like, I mean, the LA County Fair is about to open back up again. And I love to check out like their gigantic zucchini. I think it's amazing. But it is funny. Like these people just like their main pressure in British life is like protecting these vegetables, which became, you know, a little bit of a source of tension when they were working with Katzenberg because like they were getting this kind of feedback back from the American side of this production team. Jeffrey said, why is his truck rusty? Well, we understand why his truck would be rusty. Jeffrey expected him to have a brand new shiny Chevrolet. That's the British humour, I think. Things are cool because they're not. I mean, I was going to call Curse of the Weir Rabbit the great vegetable plot, but they did a lot of marketing research and came back with, uh, I'm afraid vegetables are a negative with kids. <laughs> I mean, the idea that they couldn't call this film the great vegetable plot because they thought it was too vegetable forward is just one of the beginnings of the culture classes that they had here. I think Nick Park was like, the whole point of Wallace and Gromit is to bring something uncool to Hollywood. Like, it is very important. Uh, this is actually a quote from Park. It is important in each Wallace and Gromit story to use something that is not sexy. Cheese is not sexy. Neither is knitting. Neither is vegetables. You know, that was the tone that they were really going for. And they were hearing back like, vegetables, I don't know about this. Um, but even on beyond that, like, part of me was thinking, um, is this film about losing control? Like, who are we if we become a, a wear bunny? Is, is the essence of us who we are? The idea that like in this film, not only is Wallace becoming the wear bunny, but a bunny is becoming Wallace. What part of us remains like inside of a mutation? Like, is there a, is there an us? I was really reaching. Well, I mean, I'm going to continue point. that reach and go, yeah. no matter what our surroundings, there's still something like, no matter the beast that we become, there's still a core of us that will be who we always have been, right? Like, so put it in a world of you've become 
you know, very down on life and you are maybe a little bit more miserable, like the Scrooge metaphor, right? But in, at the, at the, in the heart of you, there is still that child, right? So there is still in that wear bunny, there is Wallace. And when he sees his love, like his love, I mean, the way he turns back, I love that. It's like, it's very, it's just, you know, he turns back, it, it all is kind of fixed very quickly and you don't need it. You don't need a lot of science or jibber jabber here. You know, it's like, but I think there is a connection of love, right? There's love unites him love for cheese love for a woman the, the, these yeah, two even characters the way they like cut the melon from the vine looks like cutting the umbilical cord of a baby yeah and i mean and I, I but you know when you talk about that that melon that gromit has like that's his love that he sacrifices for a greater love right the love of his partner you know yeah and I kind of had a freak out when that when his melon explodes and it's like green goo. Because I was like, what melon is green not green on the inside? And I actually figured out the answer of what was happening, which is it's not a melon. It's actually like some sort of British squash that I don't oh, know. No, it was, it's it? supposed to be something called a marrow, which is a type of British squash. But when they were going back and forth with DreamWorks, DreamWorks was like, nobody knows that word, which would include me. Like, we can't say it because it's very confusing. So they made them change it to melon because it was easier to kind of put that word in there. But it's not a melon. It's a marrow, which is why it's green on the inside. Oh, wow. I, I, you know what? I was so taken by the explosion. That I thought it looked so great. Uh, <laughs> I was confused. I was expecting like red, red blood or something like uh, that. That would have been visually yeah. very fun. You like to watch new stuff, right? Well, go to Hulu and see what's new because Hulu has new stuff all the time. Like Vanderpump Villa, the new docudrama starring Lisa Vanderpump, where first-class luxury meets world-class drama. A new season of The Kardashians starring The Kardashians, of course. And Grand Cayman, Secrets in Paradise, the sizzling new reality show set in the tropical Caribbean. It's all new and it's streaming now on Hulu. It's one thing falling in love with a house, picturing yourself moving in and calling it home, and quite another navigating the world of price negotiating, mortgage lenders, and finding the budget that works best for you. An agent who's a Realtor can make understanding that world easier. Realtors have the expertise, access to proprietary data, and tools to help you get from imagining living somewhere to actually doing it. That's the kind of help we can provide. Because that's who we are. Realtors are members of the National Association of Realtors. But let me just extend what you said earlier to this, that people in this town treat their fruit and vegetable like children. So in that moment, did Gromit sacrifice his child? I mean, he really did. It's like a yeah. melon that he's been This is Sophie's in. choice. This is a Sophie's choice moment here. We are watching an incredibly hard decision. Gromit killed his child to save the town and his friend. Exactly. And I think related to that, I do think this movie is going on an anti-violence point of view that I find interesting. It's almost like a British film reminding Americans that it's not normal to have guns everywhere all the time. So like when even the idea of shooting the were rabbit gets brought out, like, I mean, 
The way they say just the word bullets over and over again with such dramatic intonation. Spare me the salmon, Vicar. Just tell me how I kill him. Um, I mean it. To kill such a creature would require nerves of steel and a bullet. A bullet? A bullet? A bullet? Kind of bullet. A bullet of pure gold. Gold? Yes. Twenty-four carat. (laughs) Get out of my way. That honestly felt a little weighted to me. You know, like, if you bring out a bullet in a movie... It should be crazy dramatic that somebody is thinking about killing somebody with a gun. And then again, when they like, when, when um, the Lord shoots the stuffed bunny towards the end, you hear that gunshot kind of ricochet throughout this tiny town and people quietly freak out. <laughs> Tis done. <laughs> My poor, sensitive child, allow us all to share in your moment of sorrow. And then, of course, a lot of the town cheers. But I I think there is an an anti-violent subtext to this. Like... The whole point of Wallace and Gromit's extermination business is that they are humane. Although it's funny to use the word humane for for the treating other animals kindly because humans don't really do that either. We we hunt and we eat meat. So the idea that we flatter ourselves as being humane as in humane means not killing when like honestly. Well, but they but they are they are what they're doing is they're creating a problem for themselves, right? Like they are, everyone wants to feel good that they are taking care of their animals in a humane way, that they're not being killed and they're taking them, they have no idea what to do with them. So they're living all under their house. Like they are literally, they are wrecking their own lives. I mean, they are, they are, you know, in many respects, like we go back to the vegetarian aspect of it. Maybe this is where Nick Parker's right. It's a vegetarian horror movie because we're not about killing animals, right? It's not about, um, it, it, it is about like, kind of saving them and even though they might be pests and they're annoying that this is the reason why in many respects they get in this whole trouble here is because they have a problem they're too good-hearted in a way right they're too good-hearted and no one else like it's the idea that i give someone a dollar on the street and then I don't do anything else about homelessness and go, well, I don't know why we have this big homeless problem. You know, it's like, like they're feeling like I hired a humane person. That's enough. And that's it. You know, like until someone at the end, which is, you know, his love interest, she's like, you know what? I have this beautiful, big, you know, estate. I can help. I can give these animals a home. I am also doing my part in this. I just don't need like it's get rid of this. I see it a lot with the, <laughs> uh, you know, like this idea of like, I want to help, but I don't want it near me. Right. Like, you know, like there's been a whole thing right. in no in, rabbits in my backyard. Right. And that to me is a really interesting universal idea that I think is often discussed. Yeah. Cause there's a little bit of that turn on Toddy when she like comes to his house and she's been so sweet and kind and loving and like, oh, blah, 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 blah. And then when she shows up at his house right at the end when he's like half bunny, which by the way, were you expecting a plot twist where like 
given what we know about rabbits and their sexual inclinations, that being half rabbit would make Wallace more randy. I was wondering if that would happen. Oh, and I no. wasn't sure if I wanted it to happen. I was like, this would be terrifying. To me, but- British, like, and Randy don't often combine. Like, I don't Have think of like- Have you never seen Austin Powers? Yeah, but that seems like the outlier, right? I mean, like James Bond. No, the the British oh, right, get pretty. Oh, yeah, I'm gonna take this. I'll take it out. I'll take it out. No, 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 no. We need to leave this. No, we're leaving this. Leave it. You know what? I'm sorry. Like as you say that now, I'm like, yeah, you are. Yeah, you are. You're correct. Sorry. Randy is a British word, even. I mean, yeah, Americans say Randy. Well, I think like I think Randy feels. Well, I think you know what I'm just. I'm saying like better than horny. Isn't yeah. it? Like, I think that Randy, I thought horny makes your nose scrunch up. It sounds uncool. It sounds like 80s. Horny Randy, feels like you're, you have like blue balls, right? And Randy yeah. feels like, oh, we're, we're like, ooh, oh, we're like playing grab frisky. ass. Oh. Like, and, and I, maybe that's what we're I kind of was referencing. Tail. So yeah, you know what? You are right. I just, I was associating Randy as being like more sexual, but I think Randy as being like a little bit more uh, grabby. Although, look, you know what? Naughty. 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 Yeah. That's kind of how the British would say it, which is like non-sexual. Just, oh, you're naughty. Yeah. Just like have a a filthy sense of humor or something like that. Yeah. I like that. I buy that. But yes, it did not happen. And I don't want, I don't honestly want to see Wallace running around like Jean-Claude Van Damme over there, you know, with a big- Jean-Claude Van Damme is Randy? Well, remember we were talking about how he was on that uh, that show when when we opened up the show here about him getting a little boner dancing around with those ladies. Oh, that's right. Oh, you don't want to see Wallace dancing to that song? What is it? You're making it hot. Oh, no, I don't want to. <laughs> Can you imagine like Wallace holding a carrot, like oh, squeezing its Some fronds. people right now are so upset with what we're talking about. Um, uh, okay, fine. Well, let, let's just settle on this. Then Wallace is Randy for Wensleydale cheese. His like number one cheese that he's always talking about, which I've never had. Do you, do you know what Wensleydale tastes like? No, I'm a, I'm a, I, I like cheese. I'm sure I probably have had it. Uh... But uh, no, I don't know. I mean, I did some research to try to understand what it would taste like. I found out that it's crumbly and a little bit sweet, crumbly. Mm. And it's it's the cheese that started the idea of putting cheese on apple pie, which I've always found incredibly confusing. But that's I don't because like they that. use it. They use cheddar. Maybe if we it was Wensleydale, we would understand. Mm. And no less a cheese expert than George Orwell said it was the second best British cheese. Oh, wow. Which is pretty great. But when Wallace and Gromit came out, um, and started to get popular in the 90s, Wensleydale had become an uncool cheese. Nobody really ate it anymore. And they were about to stop making it in the town of Wensleydale until Wallace started talking about his love of cheese. And it has continued to boost sales. Like Even after Were Rabbit came out, it still gave it another boost. Were Rabbit boosted sales of Wensleydale cheese 23%. 23%. Whoa. Right? Who knew this could have such an effect on cheese? Which that reminds me, in honor of this episode, I, I I looked up a book of cheese jokes and I wanted to ask you some cheese jokes. Okay, great. Well, I want to say, you know, uh, that this movie has a ton of great cheese jokes. So can you top book titles like The Hunt for Red Lester uh, or <laughs> Brighton Roquefort or How Green Was My Cheese or Brie Encounter or Swiss Cheese Family Robinson, East of Edam? Uh, let's see. Can you beat those jokes? Okay, Waiting for you Gouda? ready? Mm-hmm. <laughs> What kind of music does cheese like? Hmm. What kind of music does cheese like? A breezy music? Rap? No. Cheddar? I don't know, Amy. What do I like? You're very close. R and Brie. Okay. You know, All right. R and Brie is pretty solid. Brie. Okay. What other kind of music does cheese like? 
Wait, these are all just music and cheat. Oh my <laughs> gosh. Uh, I don't know. Give me another one. I've, I've exhausted already these ones. <laughs> Rockford and roll. Okay. Wait, what kind of cheese is the smartest? Um, the, uh, geez, now I'm only thinking of Brie. Uh, I don't know, Amy. Fe- okay, I'm, I'm, I'm fed up with these questions. <laughs> cheese whiz. Jeez oh, that's whiz. good. Fine. Okay. okay, last one. What did the podcast host say to the other podcast host who kept bothering him with cheese jokes? What? Leave me provolone. Oh, I like that. That is pretty solid. By the way, can I just be... give you, I, I, I got one for you. Okay. I got one for you too. Okay. In, in, in the tradition of Wallace and Gromit, uh, what is the cheesiest channel on TV? I think oh Wallace gosh. and Gromit. Uh, BB Cheese? Brie Brie C. <laughs> <laughs> there we go. Um, you know what? You, I, know, I, yeah. I, you know, actually, this must be how Jeffrey Katzenberg and DreamWorks felt trying to work with people who just wanted to make cheese jokes. Because Katzenberg and Spielberg, the people that they meet first, they're entering the world of... Of this kind of humor. I mean, the, there's a documentary on Ardman that I love because it starts just with this description of where they're from. Bristol, home of Banksy, Bananarama, and the inventor of the blanket. But most excitingly, it's the home of Ardman. You may not know the name, but one thing is certain. You will know their creations. But yeah, their working partnership, not really that easy. Like, they had already killed a film together by the time this came out. They were supposed to do a version of The Tortoise and the Hare. And it was going to be, I think, like a mock sports mockumentary. Okay. Following all of the characters. And after, you know, spending much, much, much money on it, building sets and everything, they just killed it and decided to move forward and do a Wallace and Gromit film instead. They couldn't quite get things together. I mean, it sounds like when they met, there was a lot of promise. We were invited to a dinner, uh, and Steven Spielberg was there, and Jeffrey Katzberg were there. I just remember being so excited about them, um, you know, in their quiet, you know, sort of Bristol, British way. Jeffrey turned to me and said, so guys, uh, do you have any ideas that you'd like to pitch to us? And in Hollywood, the Hollywood pitch is a sacred moment. They'd drawn a picture of a chicken digging its way out of a chicken coop. We're going to do The Great Escape with Chickens. I remember Steven Spielberg saying, The Great Escape is one of my favorite films, and I have 300 chickens on my ranch. (laughs) And the pitch went great. The little team of animators from Bristol had become hot Hollywood property. But embarking on their first ever full-length movie was to prove quite a leap. The budget grew from a million pounds to 30 million. A team of six grew to over 80. Two actors became a whole cast of stars. And a small studio in Bristol became, well, a small studio in Bristol. Aardman insisted that this Hollywood blockbuster was going to be homemade. But really, from the beginning, there was a lot of interesting attention put on this relationship. Like, I found, you know, scholarly British books discussing the, like, Ardman and DreamWorks relationship. Because in British culture, there is kind of a concern that, like, British things get manipulated by Hollywood, that the things that almost define England to Hollywood are a little weird. Like, James Bond, Harry Potter, using british culture identity as, like, a product feels nervous to them. Like, 
Like, are we, um, like Peter Lord even said as they were entering this like relationship, he's like, in the States, we are exotic aliens. We are a different culture. And the British fans of Aardman are already a little bit weirded out that like, you know, Chicken Run, their first movie together became a video game, which seems like anti the Aardman ethos. You know, they thought it was too American. Mel Gibson was a voice. They didn't feel like it had the Aardman aesthetic as much as it was a big hit. And this isn't so much about selling out, you know, like Wallace and Gromit, now I'm doing air quotes, like do sell out, I suppose. Like they are pitchmen for a lot of stuff. Like they sell alarm clocks and shaving mirrors and tea and cornflakes and British tourism and Japanese pudding. But But how expensive is that? Because it's not like an actor showing up on set. Like that is a, to do a 30 second commercial, we're talking, you know, a tremendous amount of time. Obviously they have the models. Yeah. Yeah. But to do something like this cracker commercial, that's gotta be really expensive. Never fear, Gromit. With the cinematic snack-o-matic, these Jacob's cream crackers won't go to waste. The great escape. Play it again, Salmon. The Hambusters. Delicious. No, it's Apocalypse Chow. No, just need a bit of fine-tuning, eh, lad? Jacob's Cream Crackers, cracking with anything. I mean, in a way, I think that's kind of what brings these two teams together, is like, Arvin has been doing their shorts. They're very successful with their Wallace and Gromit shorts, but it's so slow going. If they can get this infusion of money from America, they can hire tons more animator teams like they need. They can have like 30 tables going, doing stop motion all at the same time. And they can get through a movie a little faster than they've been able to get through their shorts. So it makes sense why they would want to do it. But it also does make sense that people are freaked out. And it feels like doing this Wallace and Gromit movie, as Britishy as it is, kind of felt like shifting back the power, you know, and saying we're putting something in a very specific cultural location. We're not going to have these characters of American accents. A lot of people kept pestering them at DreamWorks. They're like, these characters are too old. Nobody can understand them. You have to take the accents back at least just a little bit. And it it gets really frustrating. Like, they knew it was going to be hard, but I don't know if they were expecting it to be this hard. If I could jump in here and just say, I think a really interesting movie to contrast this to, which came out the same year, is Garth Jennings' version of Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, which came out earlier in 2005, Hitchhiker's Guide, the film, I mean, look, and of course, I'll just hands up. I'm a huge Douglas Adams fan. The radio show is what made me interested in audio full stop in my life. Like, that's a fact. Oh, well, so, thank you to the radio so, show because we yeah. love you. Well, indeed. But I, that's a movie, the Hitchhiker's Guide film that I saw in the theater and left in tears. In absolute tears, not good tears, because they had truly messed with every element of, of what made that thing unique. And the Britishness of it is specific. And that's the humor that's baked into the story. You go in and you start messing with it and you have nothing left at the other end. Mm. The, th- that movie is littered. W- and, and by the way, I really like Garth Jennings and I've read a lot about how this was taken away from him. So I'm not trying to lay the blame at his door just because he was the director. But there's stuff that happens in that movie where there are punchlines I know by heart that the setup is there. The punchline's not there. In other scenes, the punchline's there, but none of the setup is there. All these things are just sort of scattered around. And it seems as though, and from what I've read, this is partly true, that the executives at Touchstone came in and said, this is too British. We need American actors here. No one understands these jokes in America. And it's this thing of not trusting the audience. The Hitchhiker's Guide books and radio show were popular in the first place because they're specific, because they're written 
from a point of view that is continuous, that, that is whole, right? So the thing about this, the Hitchhiker's Guide movie comes out is not a hit at all. It made, made some money. It is not a hit. This movie comes out gigantic hit. And I think there is something to be said about the fact that this movie, even though there was some pushback from Katzenberg, etc., this movie in large part sticks to its guns. Yes, you have a marrow switched for a melon, etc. But this movie sticks to its guns about this is our viewpoint. This is why we even wanted to make this. It expresses the things that come from our culture. It's based on Hammer Horror and Doctor Who and Quatermass, things that aren't necessarily, you know, mainstream or even known over here. And the fact that they got through all that with the movie this this uncompromised and it was a big hit and won BAFTA and Academy Award, that makes my heart warm because they they smuggled their vision all the way through and it was a, it was a win, you know? I think well, it I mean, was a win, but I think it's also I think it also is part of why the partnership broke up too. I mean, because yes, then like DreamWorks true. blames this movie. Like, this movie, you know, I think it spent, they spent $30 million making it. They made $192 million, but DreamWorks was like, it lost us money and we want to get out of this contract, especially after Flushed Away didn't do well either. The well, yes. Fle- yeah. Flushed Away is a whole other kettle well, of fish. <laughs> but this is my question too. It's sort of like, it's tricky, right? Because Hitchhikers is, a movie that's not going to get a kid audience, right? This is going to be an audience that a family will go to, so it would be more successful. And now, flushed away, and and I don't want to break down that because I don't, I can't even really speak to it that much from my yeah, memory of it. Yeah, I've never seen it, and it's uh, not stop motion even. It's like CG, right? It's all computer. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Like to me, there's something about it's an interesting dilemma because Hitchhikers, which I have a lot of issues with, um, is not going to get a kid audience. This. By virtue of the fact of you put up enough posters, people will go. There's a connection to these characters already. It's going to be a hit. Even if it wasn't good, it would be like a hit, right? I think it would work. But it's interesting that they had had kind of an equal amount of failures at the box office in the kids genre as well. So I'm trying to like figure out what that is. I mean, maybe both are right and both are wrong. Like, you know, it's sort of like, yeah, DreamWorks is like, this is not really working for American audiences and that one outlier, I guess Chicken Run worked, but yeah, so maybe, you know, it's like this weird outlier because it is the, it is the crown jewel, you know, maybe in that, in that familiarity. I I don't know. I I can't really put that together. I mean, I think this is helping like prove the point that this is the right film to be talking about because it is the British and the DreamWorks together, like synergized. But I think your back and forth push, it kind of just sounds like what it was like being there. It sounds like such a back and forth relationship, you know, having Katzenberg come over every two weeks, respecting him, but also, you know, I mean, this is how it was described, their relationship from the outside. Jeffrey Katzenberg is a sort of stereotypical Hollywood movie mogul, you know, speaks his mind about everything. But I felt enormous respect from him at the same time. I asked them, what's it like working with uh, Jeffrey Katzenberg? And they said, oh my gosh, that man is a genius. We hear from him with a new idea all the time. He's just a wonderful partner and collaborator. It's fantastic. Then a production assistant walked in at that moment and said, Jeffrey Katzenberg is on the line. And all three of them turned simultaneously and said, we're not here. (laughs) You know what I'm realizing? What you were just saying about the point of this movie being like, how much of us do we retain as we change? I mean, that kind of sounds like what this movie is about on a larger scale. How much Ardman can Ardman remain as it's undergoing a change of being part of DreamWorks? It it actually does feel like the movie itself is commenting 
on the production of the movie. It is. It's a it's a lone voice. They are the humane pest control people and people love them for that. But there is somebody out there who wants to do it differently and is more like a bull in a china shop than a graceful lover of the art. It's like yeah. they are like he the the villain is the killer of animals. He just wants to get out, you know, and maybe that is Katzenberg. Oh, do we just open up a whole can bum, of worms bum, here? Bum. You're right. You're right, because they can do their smaller jobs wonderfully. Get one rabbit, get lots of applause. Everybody loves them. They live in their but own little community. Can you please the entire town all of the time? You know, can you have your audience be that big and they won't say that you've failed here and there and turn on you? I mean, in a way, it sounds like Ardman was relieved to get out of the DreamWorks business. You know, like Park was like, he actually said, it is nice to be out of the feature film pressure. I don't feel like I'm making a kid for some suburb in America and being told they're not going to understand a joke. Although I will say, I mean, they did have a short film that competed for an Oscar this year, Robin Robin, that I really hated because it was everything that we are saying we don't like. Like it had a strong moral that I thought was really tedious. I thought it was way too cute and too saccharine. Lots of hugs at the end. By the way, that's it, a short too, just FYI. Yeah, you know, yeah. yeah. Yeah, just a short, just a short. But it was like absolutely my least favorite short. And I was so glad that Windshield Wiper won instead. So I hope they aren't losing their their stick it to itness. Well, principles. I'm going to talk about something else too. I will just say not, you know, talking about this world they've created and claymation and having all this personality. I'll say that my kids love Arthur Christmas. Uh, that's an animated film that they did. And it's really, I, I think it's actually pretty good too. And again, it's a different way of looking at a Christmas story. That is um, a good movie, actually. Yeah, yeah I, I, I thought it was I've pretty good. It. But, you know, I guess this idea of DreamWorks is a tricky one because we talked about it in Trek. Katzenberg is very hands-on, for better or for worse, you know? And I think that you don't need to be hands-on with somebody who has a very distinct voice. I think in those moments, you have to be hands-off. And I think that that is about trust, right, on a certain level, too. It's like, I'm hiring you because you do something good. DreamWorks is paying Ardman money to make them hits here. And that's the agreement that DreamWorks makes. If they want to get in there and mess it up, that's not part of the deal. Now, if DreamWorks is like, I have an idea for a green ogre movie, I don't know what it is, I'm going to bring in animators, then yeah, put your fingerprints all over it because it's less of a, a fluid thing. But you are basically... that that collaboration is I'm buying an entry point into what you do. I like what you do. You do what you do. And to change that halfway through, it's like, well, it's, you're not going to get the version of them that you want because why you're already there is because you weren't there. It's like, I like what you're doing, but now let me change it. That doesn't make any sense. And I think that that's where a lot of the biggest issues come from creatively when you have these marriages, like these marriages of, of studios and heads. And, you know, it's like Amy Pascal at, you know, Sony was such a champion for interesting voices. That's why you get a Michael Clayton. That's why you get these films that get to come out and are purely one thing, but that wasn't really working for the studio, you know, on some level too. Yeah. Amy, we've talked a lot about, you know, the idea of what is the moral of this movie? And, and maybe it is that, Evil is compromising your goals or, you know, working too closely with someone else who has a pure vision. But I believe, like the people in Portland Dorset in the UK, that rabbits are evil. Because this movie, they needed to change the name of it. 
in Portland, Dorset, because there's what? a local superstition that prohibits the word that prohibits the use of the word rabbit because what? yes because the burrowing can cause dangerous landslides and uh the local uh stone quarry industry is very big there so all the posters in portland use the alternative slogan something bunny is going on um and uh they also replaced the term rabbit with jackadoodle or what? noodle poodle um yeah so basically if you go there Noodle Poodle? Noodle Poodle is a great one. Uh, they and that won't... bears no resemblance to a rabbit. <laughs> well, look, you know what? Uh, tell it to the people in Portland who are dealing with the landslides. They won't uh, even say the word rabbit. They will say underground mutton, furry things. These are the words. So this entire movie had a very different uh, reception in this town. I, I think at a certain point, just don't release it in Portland, Dorset, UK. They're traumatized people. Wait, I can't yeah. tell if this is adorable or if this is Big Stone throwing its weight around. <laughs> Big Stone it, well, being like, the, we don't call it, you know, global warming. Like, well, what? Big Stone is afraid of rabbits. We know that. So it's different. Like they are, they don't want to be elevating rabbits in any sense because rabbits destroy their quarries and the town. Oh, I would hold imagine. up. Hold up. Coring in general is digging a hole in the earth. Sure, I sure. I feel like Big Stone oh, knows wow. they're doing damage Look and wants this. to blame it on bunnies. Oh, yeah. It's the bunnies digging bunny holes, not us Big Stone digging gigantic holes. That is oh, the problem here. Oh, my gosh. If this you could see me. This is like if in Oklahoma, me. they ban, they, like the fracking company petitions so that you can't use the word raven or something like that. I mean, what are the, this is nonsense. Uh, well, you know what? If I was Gromit right now, I'd be rolling my eyes like he does 13 times in this movie because of Wallace. Um, Amy, oh, do you want to hear another Gromit fun fact? Yeah. Did you know that Gromit was supposed to be a cat? Interesting. Like, so yeah. it would have been an old school Tom and Jerry situation. Yeah, exactly. But um, Nick Park thought it was too hard to do a cat because cats, of course, are like beautiful and specific creatures and dogs are just lumps. I do like this as like a British um, Garfield. I mean, in a way. I mean, it's not quite that. I mean, huh. it's, um, you know, it's it's a man and his animal. And um, I think that that is, you know, there's nothing else similar to it, you know, uh, because obviously Gromit is the one who likes his lasagna cheese uh, and Garfield. You know. <laughs> <laughs> no, but that's interesting. I mean, weird thing about Nick Park is he said that he's never had a dog. So Gromit is based on his ideal dog, the dog that he never knew, the dog that he never had. But being, well, I, I suspect he is deep down a cat person. Well, oh, why? Why? Because he wanted this to person? be a cat from the get-go. Well, and yes, and because I'm a cat person, so therefore everybody must agree with me. Well, you know what? Here's what I'll say. One of the things that I love about uh, Gromit is that he doesn't act like a dog. I mean, they're, this is roommates. They are roommates. They live together. It is very much, uh, you know, he's the straight man. Gromit is the yeah. straight man, the silent straight man, which is interesting for a silent film character to be the straight man because I often feel like they are, well, am I right in saying that? that, that what like about they, Silent you know? Bob? Is Silent Bob the straight man? Because yeah, Jay he's is definitely, crazier. He's definitely a straight man. I was thinking about Charlie Chaplin. Charlie Chaplin 
Wow, this is, well, maybe I've opened up a can of worms here. Anyway, all I'll say yeah. is that uh, I like that dynamic. And if you're comparing Wallace and Gromit to uh, Jay and Silent Bob, then you know what, Amy? You have connected <laughs> the View Askew and Ardman universes together again. That's all they are. So Silent Bob is just a British dog and Jay is Wallace. I think that's the way we got to end this episode. Fair enough. By the way, one last J fact. Did you know that the BBC won't show some episodes of Tom and Jerry cartoons because Why? they think they're too violent? Because like they, they were talking about this. I do not preface, do not want to get on our fight again about like, what is a kid's movie? Sure. But one of the producers of this movie said that his, one of the things they grapple with when they make a Wallace and Gromit movie is that kids always want more violence. He's like, mm-hmm. eight-year-olds are always asking to see arms getting chopped off and loads of blood but we are we have to ex- exclude any violence for fear of imitative behavior just like the BBC won't play some Tom and Jerry cartoons for that reason. He said that because of that when they have like a character say for example here use a chainsaw they make them wear protective gloves and a hat. I wonder if that actually holds up for the Simpsons in on BBC like if they can actually play the itchy and scratchy cartoon segments in Simpson episodes. This is a good question. Can they play Homer strangling Bart? And that opening credit, we have to find out on the Discord. Get in there. Let us know. Uh, and I do think a shirt for us should be uh, Jay and Silent Bob and just Wallace and Gromit. That would be a great looking shirt. Or Wallace and Gromit and Jay and Silent Bob. Like we, Whatever it is, we put the image and we swap the name. <laughs> I mean, I will say whenever I remember in this movie that Gromit is a dog, it is startling. Like the moments where he walks on all fours. I'm like, right. Because he's a dog. That's or the what I'm saying. There are certain in the morning things about and you this character. That, like, yeah. He's completely naked because you see Wallace in his underwear. And then it makes you more, it makes it more obvious. Like, oh man, Gromit's only wearing boots. This is, this is really revealing. Well, now I knew that you didn't want to go here, but I will ask it very quickly without having too much debate. Um, would A, you consider this a kid's movie? And B, if you do, do you consider it a movie that, is the movie that you're looking for for kids? Is it without any references, without anything else, you know, to make it like an adult is writing this? Oh, dear. I feel like the more this conversation goes on, the more I'm going to get trapped. <laughs> like a rabbit with a manacle around my neck. Um, I can I, offer up an opinion while you think if you want, uh, you know. I would say that it seems like kids would like this movie. Would they, but would they only like it for the bunnies and the oh, running Oh, wait a second. So you're you're hypothesizing right now that this is not a children's film? Oh no. I mean it feels like a it feels like a engineer Devon film. To me, what I feel like this movie is goes back to what we were talking about before. A perfect family film. It is fun for everyone. It is enjoyable for an adult. It's enjoyable for a kid. It is written in a way that I think engages everyone from the homages to hammer and horror to the silent work to the big grandiose uh, images. I, I think that this is, this is what I'm talking about. Like the idea of let's bring back this type of film more and more. It's the ETs. It's, it's the movies that you feel like, Oh, I didn't, I'm not going because my kids want to see it. And my kids aren't feeling like I don't understand what's going on. It's a, it's a weird middle ground and certain movies can hit it perfectly and some don't. And that's in the Pixar world. That's in the Disney world. I, I think that there are these, you know, a lot of them, but I like more of these. It's kind of a perfect down the line family movie. And I say that with no, no edge to it. Like, that's a good thing. 
If I could offer, I think yeah, to please. call back to what you guys said before, I think the thing that sets this apart and maybe makes this a really good family movie is that it doesn't talk down to its audience. It doesn't talk yep. down to anyone watching. And I think that applies to kids and adults. That's my, and, that's my personal yeah. opinion. I, and I like it. I think what Amy was saying before, and I don't want to put words in your mouth, Amy, but the idea that there isn't an overt lesson or moral, I think actually elevates it so it doesn't feel like it has to be teaching us, even though they might be wearing protective clothing while operating uh, heavy machinery, which is totally fine. Uh, you know, we should all do that. We should all do that. I should <laughs> we wear should aprons when I cook. There's a lot of stuff we should Oh, you got to wear an apron. Uh, <laughs> all right. So I can't imagine. I mean, you'd have to be without heart to not appreciate this movie. Truly, only on the sense of the artistry that is at play here, right? You could say, like, I don't find the humor interesting or I, I may not like the story, but these are lovable characters. They're the great... It's great. I think it's very hard not to like this movie, but were there people out there who did not? I really had to look again to find negative reviews, but I yeah. found one. I found a very, very negative review. Oh, oh. Wow. Once again, I'm reading from a blog. So this is I'm shouting out to the film file who reviewed this mm -hmm. movie when it came out. Um, and they wrote that this is the least funny, least charming and most interminable animated film of the year. Wow. A half-baked kid-friendly parody of monster movies and buddy comedies that would prompt hatred for its utter emptiness if it weren't so boring. The comedy, Jeez. most of it relying on visual gags or one-liners, is groan-inducing rather than funny. The pace is creaky and meandering in the worst way, and attempts at creating suspense from the threat of the were-rabbit fall flat. The tone is simply too airy to pose a threat, and there is never a doubt that all will turn well in turn out well in the end. This is a chaotic mess of a film, one that fans might like by principle, and all others need not apply. It is one note, listless, D-grade junk, about as tedious as theatrically released animated pics get. Wow. Very interesting. You know, and I noticed something here. It just is worthy of exploring for a second. This movie has a 95% on Rotten Tomatoes. Really high. Like, that's a giant, that's a really great score for a film. It's got a 79% audience score. Hmm. Which is interesting. And I wonder if that goes down to the Britishness of it. It wasn't violent enough. It, it didn't have enough bite. It is too simplistic or, you know, meandering. So I wonder if there is some truth in that, like to see that little bit of a split, you know, a, a 95 to a 79, it normally is the other way. Like critics thought it was a 79, but audiences think it's a 95. So I, not to say I, I want to give to the, you know, give voice to the people here, but it is, it is really interesting. I mean, I bet if we brought Katzenberg a bunch of carrot-flavored vodka and started a conversation, he would have eventually, at the end of the bottle, tell us he thinks he could have gotten it up to an 85% audience score. Mm. Don't well, you think? Well, but you think that Katzenberg, at a certain point, is like, I won the Oscar, that's all I needed to do. And nah. maybe I, 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 I got it. Yeah. I mean, it got money, it got money, it got the Oscar. So I think, like, whenever anything is a success that you didn't like, then you automatically yeah. adopt it as something that you did do. But I will say... Between this movie, talking about the Britishness of it, and Akira, where the reviews that we read could only talk about Akira by comparing it to Disney movies, I am just becoming so aware of how we of the the need to take off glasses that say this is how this film should be compared to the way that I know it in my own country. These are the kind of jokes we like, and this is the kind of story we like. I know it's hard, maybe even impossible to like rid yourself of that, but but I guess I I don't want America to be such a big bully and make everybody bend to us. 
I think it's something we're always wrestling with, right? Not enough appreciation for other cultures. And it's something that I think we're actively trying to remedy. And then you see these great successes with things like Squid Game or, you know, uh, even ad- adaptations of different shows that come over here like, oh, we got it. right. But there is, I think, a general attitude that it's just different. I mean, it, you know, we've talked about that. I mean, it's, I do think sensibility is different. I love British comedy and I love, you know, the mighty Boosh, Alan Partridge. And there are so many, you know, there's so many more too, but, uh, that's, that is funny to me. I mean, I could listen to Alan Partridge do his podcast and book on tape and I'm laughing harder than anything that I've listened to. Like, it's like, I'm, I'm all in, you know, but that's also an acquired taste as well. Not a bad Speaking thing, of it's... acquired taste, have you ever had Branston pickle? I don't think I have. I just bought a jar. It's like kind of a, uh, it's like a British pickle relish. It's okay. malty and strange and sweet mm. and sour. I've realized I've eaten it before in England, like on cheese sandwiches, and I didn't know that you could buy it here. I've decided oh, wow. I'm, I'm entering a new sandwich phase of my life. And I so I ate a Branston pickle today to get into the mood. Well, uh, how was it? It was wonderful. It was absolutely wonderful. It's a flavor of palate we don't have here on our sandwiches. I'm all for uh, getting a pickle. More relish. More, More relish. relish. I relish More the Randy relish. relish. Wow, we've really gone all over the map from Jean-Claude Van Damme's hard-ons to pickle relish <laughs> and Jay and Silent Bob. We've covered it all. Amy, Wait, but... there's one thing we haven't covered. What? We should say, this has come up on the show before, the great carrot conspiracy that rabbits don't really like to eat carrots this much. I found out on YouTube that you can find videos of like rabbits refusing to eat carrots mm. and and that it was all, you know, tracing it back, that it all traces back to like when we did It Happened One Night where Clark Gable eats a carrot and then they animated Bugs Bunny to look like Clark Gable and Clark Gable was eating a carrot. So Bugs Bunny was eating a carrot. So now we all think that rabbits really love carrots. And so I went down on a rabbit hole. Oh, God. Oh, wow. <laughs> About this, to like look at YouTube videos of rabbits eating carrots, which is actually not punishment at all. Uh, and so I thought, I'd I'd share with you a video that I found called ASMR Rabbit Eating Carrot because it was really pleasant. Here you go. Wow, Uh, that is great. And, you know, before I saw Sonic 2, uh, they played a hedgehog clip in the hedgehog. This is at the Alamo Draft House, the great Alamo Draft House, where they uh, basically the hedgehog was eating the entire time. And my kids at first hated it and then grew to love it. Uh, so, you know what? This is a, a, a good a good thing. Last week, <laughs> we went to you to help us decide which Miyazaki film we should do for Animation Month. And the votes have been tallied. We pulled them from Discord and Twitter, from our unspooled Instagram, and the answer was quite surprising. By a hair, the winner was Porco Rosso, which is a film that I was not expecting to jump up. This is about uh, an aviator turned pig who is pulled into a conflict that he doesn't want to participate in and finds out the meaning of help, friendship, and uh, maybe not being so alone in the world. Take a listen to uh, a little bit of the uh, dub trailer. Marco Rosso, Miyazaki's soaring action adventure of a valiant pilot. It is Porco! Transformed by a mysterious spell. I only look out for myself. And his heroic battles to rid the skies of notorious pirates. Slice of the bacon! Full of courage and humor. I'll tell everyone you're chicken! Chicken, pig, what's the difference? <laughs> Take flight with the incredible 
Porco Rosso. We'll see you next week for Porco Rosso. And you can watch it on HBO Max right now. It's right there. All right. uh, See you next week. There are any number of reasons you might consider selling your home. To move closer to family, live within a smaller budget, or just wanting a change of scenery. Whatever your reasons, having to figure out all the various housing market trends in your area may not be what you signed up for. That's where an agent who is a Realtor comes in. Realtors have the expertise to help you find the right price and navigate the process to sell your home in a way that's right for you. That's who we are. Realtors are members of the National Association of Realtors. Start clean with Clorox, because Clorox delivers a powerful clean every time. Because messes happen. Because... Hey, listen. Remember how you told me to toss those takeout containers before we left for vacation? And you were like, I'm serious. If that leaks over the counter, it'll be a slimy abomination by the time I get back. And I was like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Of course. Don't worry about it. I won't forget. (laughs) Well. Ooh, yeah. That happens. So start clean with Clorox. Use Clorox products as directed. Rinse after use if in contact with food surface.